Welcome to Navigating Change, the podcast from Tybal Education. I'm Pete Wright, and I am pleased today to bring you part two of our conversation with Grant Lichtman, author of Moving the Rock, Seven Levers We Can Press to Transform Education. In today's show, we explore a few important questions. What kinds of skills are needed by students beyond knowledge acquisition? What does it mean to develop the skills of a lifelong learner in this age of accelerating change? How do we prepare students to have a resiliency in their capacity to remain open to learning? And what happens to institutions that don't make this shift? Another very important conversation for our K-12 and higher education leaders. It runs just under 15 minutes, so we hope you're able to take the break today and join us. It really is about being a lifelong learner. That model I mean, just think about in our lifetime, in my lifetime, that model of going from developing a set of knowledge and skills so that I have the capacity to do a job for a lifetime, that model is over. And I would say that part of it is is the blindness that the schools have. They don't have an alternative, and it's like the IBM mainframe when they were still selling mainframes. What's the motivation to go to microcomputers and invest in a whole other model when the IBM mainframe was still selling millions of dollars? It's only when people stopped buying them that IBM made that shift. Exactly. And so the speed with which uh, any one school or district will transform is largely uh, related to the diversity of options that families have in that area. I, I use the example of the district uh, where I, I live near San Diego. San Diego Unified School District is the second largest school district in California. I think it's something about 350,000 students. Within the last two years, 50% of students within the geographic area of San Diego Unified were not going to their neighborhood school. Wow. Uh, you know, 20 years ago, that would have been 9 or 10%, and now it's 50%, and the, the curve is not slowing down. Why is that? Because there's a tremendous amount of district choice, there are a lot of charters, there are a lot, there are a lot of different options that didn't exist uh, 15 or 20 years ago. That's not the case in every city, town, and region in, in America. So the, the rate of change is going to be very different. But what we do see is, is that when given the option, uh, of saying, I want my kid to go to a school that is essentially stuck in the traditional model, or I want to go, I want my kid to go to a school where that's a, a deeper learning model that's student centric, where the students own the learning and it's based on their interests and passions and all the other things that describe deeper learning. A lot of people say, yeah, I want my kid at the one where they're being excited and engaged all the time. If they have the choice, they make that choice. And those kids are not going to some other school and that other school's doors are going to be shut at some point uh, if they don't get on board. And so we're not, it's not going to be an even and equitable evolution. Uh, evolution is not an even and equitable process by, by nature, but it is inevitable. Well, you know what? I'm curious about something. I've been thinking more about this difference between evolution and revolution. Even the focus in my work, and I'm curious about the focus in your work, is that Part of what we need to do is we need to provoke accelerating a revolutionary way of thinking as opposed to incrementally getting better. My overall sense with the institutions I'm working with is that it's it, it's really about incrementally getting better. They're stuck in this idea that they can't take the risk of trying something too different because they will mess up their budgetary year-by-year system, and that's too much 
of a shift. And until then, we're going to be living in incrementalism until something external is going to cause that to change. Revolution, revolution is very much a yes and. And I didn't believe that as little as three or four years ago. I thought we had to make a choice between uh, throwing down the gauntlet, uh, you know, doing something that we would think of as sort of very rapid and revolutionary and something that was 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 much slower. And I, I don't think that's the case. I think it's a question of scale. What has shifted for you that got you to this yes and on that conversation? Uh, more optimism, seeing that things are happening? Why? Yes. Well, that's part of it. So I think at, at a local scale, uh, in individual cases, there are lots and lots of revolutions happening. And in Toto, those then, if you step back up to the 50,000 foot level, in Toto, those are the evolution. Uh, I, I quote, uh, I, was, I was fortunate enough to interview uh, Arthur Levine for the book. Arthur is now the uh, president of the Woodrow Wilson Foundation, and I think Almost anybody would agree has a, a resume in education unri- uh, you know, rivaled by few in America. And Arthur put it to me this way. He said, uh, Grant, you have to understand that our society uh, on so many fronts, virtually every institution in our society is undergoing a significant transformation out of the industrial and into, frankly, the the information and post-information age. And that just takes time. Uh, It it may take a couple of decades for us to say that the entire system of education or the majority of education has fundamentally evolved. But that process, that evolution is accelerated by individual organizations and individuals uh, uh, taking revolutionary steps, if I can say it that way. And that's what I tried to share was that there are these examples all over the country of, if I put myself in 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 the position of the reader, I read about a school or a district that looks exactly like mine and they're doing something that appears to me to be revolutionary and positive and I want it to happen. And I have to ask myself, why are they succeeding and I'm not? Uh, and these levers are ones that don't require me to throw out the school board. They don't require new legislation to be passed. They don't require me to fight with the teachers union or uh, the, the you know get into a politically divisive argument. These are schools and districts. They just started doing stuff. They just started doing it, and thereby their revolution is contributing to an overall evolution that frankly didn't exist a decade ago. This this is a really interesting one, Howard. I want to pivot to you because this question I can't shake. And and I think what you're talking about right now, Grant, gets to this, that this this is a cementing of the uh, sort of inequitable uh, development of change in K-12. You know, it's it, we're sort of spreading the the student readiness uh, and the expectations going into higher ed, right? Is this, are we trickling up or trickling down? I would say to independent schools and as well as the K-12 through world that they do have a role of guiding what higher education institutions should be thinking about what they need. But it, it's a funny story because I'll tell you what's, what the story is at the higher ed level about K-12. through They're swamped. They're swamped with thinking about just getting through enrollment, keeping their discount rate down. At the most senior levels, it is business as usual in a lot of places. They're, they're already mired in daily administrivia. And, and it's important because it's the foundation of what keeps 
thousands and thousands of people employed in a machine that is that very much is self-perpetuating, but they see that there's something coming. The, the thing that they think about at this level is the concern about readiness of a, of a student coming in out of high school into this world, and increasingly the story is they need to have more support systems that are not just academic but psychological. There's a greater awareness that students are coming in with more emotional issues that they need to be able to deal with. And then a whole different demographic grant of students coming in that we're not part of the classic overwhelming those individuals who are who are part of the culture that have had the academic benefits, you know, mostly white. And as the change in demographics start to show up in higher ed, they're saying in one breath they want diversity, in another breath they recognize this diversity is going to force them to think differently about what kind of diverse faculty they, do they have, but also are they able to meet these students as they enter the university setting. So they, they do not look at, in my view, K-12 through as a place to say, what can we learn from them? They find themselves reacting to what's coming to their door. And, you know, I think there's a missed opportunity here in itself for a certain kind of partnership. Three of the seven levers that I write about in the book touch on the relationship between K-12 and colleges. And so very briefly, those three points are. One chapter has to do with the admissions process. How do we assess uh, high school students and how are they admitted to college. It's a real point of dissonance. Uh, uh, high schools uh, universally point the finger at colleges and say, we can't change because these colleges are expecting our kids to get high scores on the SATs to just be very, you know, blunt and summarized about it. You know, they want the, they want the, the SATs, the ACTs and the AP scores and that's what they're admitting our kids on. So there's one chapter about that we can get into a little bit more. How is that changing? And you know why they want that? They, they want that because they want to keep their rankings. Right, exactly. Again, exactly. it's back to brand. Yeah. Right? It's, it's about rankings. So there's that element. The second point of, rela- of, of relationship between the two uh, systems has to do with how we train teachers. There are roughly 1,400 colleges and universities in the country that train our teachers, and yet only a very small handful of them are teaching teachers how to be teachers of deeper learning as opposed to working in the old traditional industrial age system. This is something that the faculties of a teacher college could wake up tomorrow and say, you know what, guys, we got to stop and gals, we got to stop doing that. We need to train teachers for the future, not the past. And in 2018 or 2019, they could have an entirely different curriculum. They're not doing it uh, very quickly, but they could. It's a it's an easy pr- uh, lever to press. And the third one, the third point of uh, overlap would be in uh, the kind of work that you and I do in terms of change management is in making the skills and training of of uh, leadership and change management radically more accessible to a much broader group of educators uh, than uh, have access to that today. And in all three of those areas, there's tremendous opportunity for uh, K-12 and higher ed folks to come together and say, you know what, look, there's all the, there are examples already out there of, of K-12 and colleges who've already solved the problem. How can the rest of us 
follow the same path. We know it's difficult. We know it's going to cause conflict. We know it's going to, uh, it's not going to be comfortable for a lot of our stakeholders, but this is what we have to do. And look, here are some examples of folks who are and organizations that are already doing it. I could absolutely see uh, us having people read aspects of your book and then and engaging in those as conversations for action. Like, how are we going to take some of these ideas forward? So I always have bandwidth for, for anything that, uh, that A, you're involved in, and B, uh, would help move the rock. I think that the conversation now, again, is uh, has shifted from the uh, why and the what to the how. Having said that, I would I would push back to you. What I, the sense I get uh, in terms of colleges, and you work with them, and I'd ask you this question. The sense I get is a tremendous amount of dissonance at the college level. I, I use the example of you know of MIT. How does MIT offer? Uh, you know, their, their education for $60,000 a year. And by the way, it's free. Our courses are free on the internet. Um, it, what I see from K-12 space is that the colleges are going through a period of tremendous dissonance about what they're going to be uh, 10 years, what their value proposition 10 years down the road is going to be. They don't have the answers to that. They don't have the answers that you, to the questions you asked about how do we prepare for this generation of kids coming up. But what is happening is inevitable. And so there are going to be institutions at both K-12 and college level that figure this stuff out and uh, provide a good value proposition for their communities. And there are going to be those who don't. And that's, that's evolution. Uh, it's not friendly and it's not kind. I think one of the unintended consequences is we do not think beyond uh, what we can influence today or tomorrow or for the next three years. Thank you so much for your insights here, gentlemen. To learn more about Grant Lichtman and his fantastic work in the field, check out grantlichtman.com. You'll find that link and links to pick up his latest book, Moving the Rock, Seven Levers We Can Press to Transform Education, in the show notes for this episode. You can also learn more about Howard and how Tybal Education supports the higher education community at tybalink.com. On behalf of Howard and Grant, I'm Pete Wright. Thank you for your time and attention today. We'll catch you next time right here on Navigating Change, the podcast from Tybal Education.